and I'm going to start us off in prayer. Father God, uh, we come to you this morning humbled and grateful to have the opportunity to come and worship in your house. We know that where two or more are gathered, that you are there also, and we know that you are here, that you are with us, that you are among us. God, we, we thank you for the message of grace that Chris has shown to the young ones, God, and help it to be um, not just something that we, we tell kids about, that it becomes a, a child story or something we think that gets us um, in the door, but not something that is true for us and that we desperately need on a daily basis. God, help the reality of what you have done for us through your son be, permeate every aspect of our lives. God, open this text to us. Give me the words to speak. Calm my nerves. Remove the awkwardness. Um, God, let uh, your, your words be spoken and um, let your message be heard and received by the, the hearts and minds of those who are here. And God, first and foremost, let this be a message that is, that is something that um, resonates in me, that is true for me, that I need more than anybody else, and um, that's that can flow into the rest of us, God. And uh, God, just we, we, we thank you again for your grace and for your son, and it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. So the first time I ever drank coffee, it was to impress a girl. I was, I was 17, and I liked this girl, and, and she took me to a coffee shop, and the, the manliest thing I could think to order was black coffee. And it was disgusting. And so we got to the table, and I'm, and I'm sipping my coffee, and I politely excuse myself, and I go to the little station thing, and I, I dump a ton of cream and sugar in there. And, and it, was, it was drinkable, and I choked it down. But then my mission from that point on was that I was actually going to become manly enough that I could, could drink black coffee without cream and sugar. And so the next weeks and months that followed that was this process of weaning myself off of those uh, extras and just getting down to, to black coffee. Uh, and, and I did it, and that served me really well uh, when I went to college for all the early morning classes uh, to get through uh, you know, those, those all-nighters that everybody talks about, to get through finals. Uh, when I entered the workforce, it became part of my morning routine and ritual uh, to get out the door in the morning. Maybe that's familiar to several of you. Uh, and when we had our, our daughter, when she was born, uh, it became, you know, nobody sleeping, and so we were able to, to keep going that way. And so this, this drinking black coffee became a, a useful uh, tool for me, but at the same time, uh, you know, as these things go, the, the more uh, coffee I drank, the, the less effect the caffeine seemed to have on me. And so when I was in the middle of this, this process, I was experiencing uh, negative health consequences. So I was drinking about two pots of coffee a day, and I was having trouble falling asleep. This, in my mind, unrelated, having trouble falling asleep, not sleeping very well, having trouble getting up in the morning, uh, had you know, migraines, had headaches all the time, my body felt bad, and my solution to that was to drink more coffee, to counteract the effects of being tired and all those things. And so it, you know, obviously this, there's something wrong here in the situation. And in the meantime, I also had realized I'd not drank a glass of water in about 10 years. 
Like on purpose, I never sat down and poured a glass of water and drank it. Like maybe if it came at a restaurant or something, I might. And so they're, they're, all of you, yeah, I can see the, the judgment. Um, there is a, there's obvious, there's a problem here. Uh, somebody, a friend brought me an article that they had, had read and they said, I think you need to read this. And the article was about, you know, the, the doctors and scientists have, have discovered that if you wake up in the morning, this is a pretty common thing. If you're a coffee drinker, the first thing you want in the morning is coffee. That's the first thing. They say if you have that craving, it means it's a reflection that you actually, your body needs water, that you, you need hydration. And so instead of, you can start replacing this habit, so instead of pouring the cup of coffee, then you need to go and pour a cup of water and just, you know, chug some water before you drink your coffee. Maybe, maybe let's try that. Okay, so I had that bit of information in the back of my head. This is what needs to happen. I know that there is a problem. In the front of my head, I have all these physical side effects, and it took about two years from the point that I first read that article until I actually drank my first cup of water. Okay? <laughs> Two years. This is, this is, all of this is true. I'm not making this up. This isn't hyperbole. This is, this, is, this is real life. This is me. So I knew the problem. I knew the solution. It was a very simple solution. And it took me that. I had to come to that solution on my own. And so then finally one morning I wake up and I, and I didn't even know how to properly use a glass. And I just got this wild hair. And so we have, it, it couldn't be easier, people. I, there was a, there's a water dispenser on the outside of our fridge. And so I took my coffee mug and I press it. Water comes in. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. And I drank the cup of water. I filled it up again, did that. And, and there was no, it wasn't, it's not a magic bullet. You know, it took some time. And so over, you know, the next few weeks and months, I continued to do this and eventually, you know, got a, got a glass that I started using to pour the water in. And, you know, I'm not crazy. I didn't stop drinking coffee. But over a period of time, then I was drinking a lot more water and a lot less coffee. And I started to feel better in all those symptoms. I was going to bed easier. I was sleeping better. I was waking up better. I didn't have the headaches. And, you know, so this is great. And again, obvious stuff, simple solution, simple problem. But we have a problem with change. And and another part of that. So today is, is three weeks exactly to the day from, from New Year's Eve. And so if you're like millions of Americans, you probably made some, some New Year's resolutions. We do this year in and year out. We, we resolve new year, new me. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to make these positive changes, have a healthier, better life. And the studies, the research they've done is that by this point, three weeks after making a resolution on New Year's Eve, 85% of Americans have broken those resolutions. There's, just, it's, there's something wrong with us, right? <laughs> We're wired in this way that we, we know the solutions, even if they're simple things, even if we're going to be healthier, even if it's going to be better for us, we're gonna, we can resolve to make these changes, and it just we have to get there on our own. We have to learn the hard way, and, and even then it takes some time. So when I was talking to Bill this week about you know, what, what he's been going, preaching through and, and what we would, where we'll be going this morning. He was telling me, yeah, so, you know, New Year, we're going to, you know, get the, the mission, the vision of Family Bible Church in order. And so he said that, you know, a couple weeks ago, he did a sermon. He talked about how Family Bible Church needs to get outside the four walls of this church. That, you know, lost people, we can't expect them to show up here. We have to go out to them. And then, you know, last week he said he talked about the process of discipleship, that every disciple is also, you know, that the end result is not to be just a learner, but to be someone that makes disciples. That's, that's our mission as followers of Christ. We're, we all have a ministry to someone else in our lives. 
And I was, you know, thinking about that. And these are, these are good things. These are true things. These are biblical, beneficial things. But those are also big changes if that's not how you view your life and that's not something you're already doing. And, it's, and change is hard. So what I proposed that we do this morning was that we, we talk a little bit about motivation, about how do, we, how do we get from point A to point B? What's the thing that drives us to make changes like this in our lives? And I think that, that Paul gives us that answer in Ephesians chapter 2. So chapter 2 verse 1 starts off like this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a, you know, a harsh way to start off your morning, but, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he's not speaking about physical death, he's speaking about spiritual death that does lead to physical death. And when we say a statement like this, you know, a room, usually the, the responses I get are kind of one of two things. A room gets divided um, on this topic. Is either the people who, who recognize what Jesus has done for them and how far he's brought them and can read a statement like that and be like, yes and amen. I was dead in my trespasses and by the grace of God, I'm not anymore. But then there are, are many people that, you know, depending on what your, your background looks like, what your process of coming to Christ looks like, you know, maybe you grew up in a Christian household. Maybe you were always a good kid. Some of us are just type A personalities that are rule followers anyway. And so, you know, you start, you know, you say, well, I know that, you know, Jesus, yeah, he saved me. That, that's true. I'm a Christian. Uh, but, but I wasn't that bad off before. Like, it's just, it's been an improvement since I came to Christ. And maybe, you know, I don't know any of you, so maybe there's people in this room that I would include in that category that just wandered in here this morning and are like, I don't know who this Jesus guy is or what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I made some mistakes, but I'm a pretty good person. And so we have to realize, and Paul realizes, we have to realize that the way we get to an understanding of, of what needs to change in our life, we have to realize how bad the bad news is first, right? We have to, to get a comprehension of, of where we're coming from, of what our understanding is. And a lot of this um, comes from a misunderstanding of what, what sin actually is. What, a misunderstanding of what sin actually is. When we talk about sin... And maybe you've heard this definition. The, the, the word sin uh, is usually presented this way. So it's, it's an archery term, right? And so archery, you're, you're aiming a bow and arrow, and you're trying to shoot at a target. And a sin is to, to miss, to not hit the bullseye. It's, it's to be off target. So you have the right, the true aim, the true intention, but you, you make a mistake. And there is truth to that. I mean, that is the literal definition of, of, of the word sin. But at the same time, it's, it's more than that. Right? So when sin is presented to us in the Bible, starting in the Garden of Eden, sin is not just a, a mistake, a tripping up, a missing of the mark. We talk about our fall from grace. It is not, um, you know, oh, oops, I tripped and fell. It is a, a conscious, active rebellion against the holy and perfect God, the creator of the universe. It is, it is a, an act of treason, an act of willful rebellion. And so when we talk about sin, it's not just, oops, I missed the mark. It is the target is completely behind us and we're firing a machine gun Scarface style into the woods in the opposite direction. That's, that's, what, that's the, the picture of sin we have. There are sins of, of omission uh, where we, you know, we didn't necessarily intend it, but we did the wrong thing. We let the wrong thing happen. And sins of commission, sins we actively commit, but we are, we're steeped in sin. 
uh, the Apostle Paul in a different letter that he wrote to the, to the Romans. In Romans chapter 3, he gives kind of this diagnosis of the human heart. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, he says, No one is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Romans 3.23, that, you know, that verse that we should hopefully all know, but that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are considered sinners. All of us have this, this innate ability to rebel and, and do the wrong thing and turn our back on God. We're, we're taking God and pulling him off the throne. Whether we see it this way or not, we're pulling him off the throne and putting ourselves on the throne and saying that I'm the one that's in charge. I could, I could run my life better than you. And Paul says in Ephesians that there are, are many reasons for this. You, we're dead in our trespasses and sins that separate us from God. It says, in which you once walked, verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So these three things. So it starts off, he says, one of the reasons that we have such a problem with, with sin is because of the culture that we live in. Now we have to be careful because I, mean, I think far too often um, Christians get um, framed, I don't know where I'm walking, get framed and defined uh, by what, more for what we're against than what we're for, right? Like that's, that's a problem. That's a, that's a misconception that we have an issue with. Um, we need to be defined by, by the things that, that we really actually stand for, not what we stand against. But the culture around us, not speaking about... Uh, not speaking about, you know, music or movies or a lot of the, the hot-button things that we talk about. But even if we are just, if we're honest with ourselves for five seconds, if we, if we turn on the news, even, even the local news or the national news or the world news, um, for five minutes, we can admit this, there's something wrong with our culture. If we scroll through social media, you know, five minutes, it doesn't take long to come, you know, to see there is a problem in this world right? That this is, this is a dark place, a sinful place, that, that we are turned as a culture against God. And it's not just true of America. It's not just true of Highland. It's, it's true of all people, of all places, all times, around the globe, throughout history, that, that the culture around us is turned against God. And that, whether we want it to or not, or think it does or not, it has an impact on us. But the second thing he says is that we, we are impacted by the culture, but we're also following the prince of the power of the air, which is a euphemism for, for Satan, for the devil. And this is, this is hard. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says when we come uh, to the topic of Satan and his demons, there are two equal and opposite errors that we can make. And one of them, the first one is to overemphasize on Satan and demons and, and look and see them everywhere. So if you got a nail in your tire on the way to church this morning, you know, you could say like, you know, well, Satan is just trying to keep me down. He's trying to keep me from church. That's, that's a spiritual attack on me. And that may be true, but more than likely, sometimes we just run over nails. 
right? Not everything is, is Satan attacking you. But the opposite, an equal error that we can make is to completely ignore Satan and his demons and, and, and deny that they exist. Because clearly there is something to this. Paul brings it up here. The end of Ephesians uh, chapter 6 is all about spiritual warfare that's going on around us. We have to be aware and cognizant that that is happening. And so we have to, to see when Satan is described in the Bible, he is a liar. He is the father of lies. He is the enemy of God. He is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Often when we, we think of Satan and demonic activity, it's a movie like The Exorcist where you know, you, somebody is possessed and you know, your head is spinning around and you're throwing up green stuff. And that typically is not the picture that we have of Satan, that he, he is seductive. He is inviting. He makes good sound evil and evil sound good. And he tempts us into, through lies and through um, you know, making it seem appealing, into doing the wrong thing. So we have these two, these two things that we bring up, the culture around us and Satan and his activity. And this is often where I think a lot of us stop reading because then this solution comes up that, well, maybe if we moved out to you know, the desert and started a commune, maybe if we built a bunker and hid down there or built a monastery or a nunnery or these places and we escaped, we ran away from the culture that's so evil and ran away from, you know, we spent all of our time in prayer and Bible study and devotion, maybe Satan you know, we could, we could hold off his attacks, and then we would stop sinning, right? Then we would be okay if we could just wall ourselves off. But then there's the third problem. It's not just the culture. It's not just Satan working, but we live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of our bodies and minds, and that makes us children of wrath. So it's not just that that's the problem, it's this that's the problem. It's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, it's what comes out of a person. And again, if we have some honesty, some self-awareness, and spend some time looking in the mirror and examining our own hearts and minds, that there is not, if we could, all right, if, if I told you right now, okay, good news, I've been uh, uh, monitoring every thought you've ever had for the last 10 years, and we're going to play them up on these screens right now. We're all going to get to see your thoughts. That would make a lot of us nervous. Or I've hidden a bug in your, your home, and I've recorded every word that you've ever said, and we're going to play it right now here for all of us. And so everybody gets to know, um, you know what you say behind closed doors or your, your, the way that you feel about things, your emotions or the actions that you've done. By, you know, and so all of us, we're not... We're not as bad as we could be. When we compare ourselves to Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody like that, you know, we say, well, I'm comparatively a pretty good person. But when we compare ourselves to a holy and perfect God, when we compare ourselves to the sinless Jesus, um, we start to recognize that we do all fall short of the glory of God, that we, um, you know, daily, momentarily, with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, with our emotions, that we are not living up even, not even with God's standard. We're not meeting up to our own standards for ourselves or what we expect from society. And this is a problem. And I'm not trying to, to beat a dead horse, but we have to recognize the depth of this problem. And so, and take it one step further, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about this problem, you know, he, he says we often measure ourselves against, um, you know, standards. And so, like, the Ten Commandments becomes a standard. This is God's law. This is, this is ultimate truth. 
in God's law, Jesus says, you know, it tells us thou shalt not murder, right? We, we shouldn't kill people. And so most of us can be like, yes, I'm following the law. I've never killed anybody. Maybe that's not true, but, but hopefully, yeah, we've never killed anybody. I've, I've lived obediently to the letter of the law in that regard. But Jesus says, I say unto you, if you've ever had anger in your heart against somebody, you're guilty of the very same thing. That root sin that causes someone to commit murder is in your heart even if you've never done that action. So it goes beyond just me keeping my actions under control, but it really is about my heart. He says, you know, you've heard it said that, you know, you shouldn't commit adultery. And I can say, I followed the letter of the law and I've never cheated on my wife. But I say to you, if you've ever had lust in your heart towards someone else that's not your spouse, you're guilty of the very same sin. And then every mouth is silenced. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We, we cannot live up to this standard. We cannot meet it. And, this, and Jesus tells us, you know, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This has ruined, this has wrecked our relationship with God in all of these ways. And so the bad news is, is worse this morning than we thought it ever possibly could be. But verse 4 the two most beautiful words in the whole Bible, but God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Your life looked this way. You were on this path. You were by nature a child of wrath. But God, why? Because he is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God completely changes. He flips the scripts, changes our story, gives us a new, um, new name, a new identity because he is, he's rich, he's wealthy. What he has stored up, what he has bank vaults full of is mercy because the way that his attitude towards us is Love is compassion. And so he sees us even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we are in open rebellion against him, committing treason on a daily basis against him, when we're firing that machine gun of our self and our own desires into the woods on the opposite direction of the target that we're supposed to be aiming at, that's when God loves us. He doesn't love the future, better, cleaned up, perfect version of you, your Facebook profile version of you. He loves you as you are right now in the moment, and that's who he's working to save. And then this picture he's giving us here that he, he, he forgives us and he makes us alive together with Christ is the, is the portrait of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we talk about. That, you know, throughout the history of the world, God is looking down, he's seeing us and our separation from him and our inability to get things right and, you know, taking 10 years to be able to do, you know, make a simple change that would be a better decision. And he's, you know, these people cannot get it together. And he's had this plan from the beginning. And it, but he gives us the opportunity, you know, he, he shows us all the ways that, you know, we can get it wrong. So we go through the Old Testament and we look at these pictures of, you know, so maybe if we just knew what the rules were, right? Maybe if we just had a, a list of, of your top ten commandments, maybe we could, could obey that. And we see that that doesn't work. 
Maybe if we had, you know, some, some judges who could tell us, you know, interpret the law for us, tell us what's right and wrong, deal out punishment, maybe that would keep us in line. That doesn't work. Maybe if we had, um, you know, some priests who could intercede for us on our behalf and offer some sacrifices and maybe cover up and atone for our sins, maybe that would work, and it doesn't. Maybe if we had a king, you know, if that one king could be, if maybe if we can't follow you, but maybe if our king could be a, a better than us and represent us in some way, that would work out. It doesn't. King after king after king fails them. Maybe if we had this, you know, if you had prophets who could, you know, it's just we don't understand what you're thinking, God. Maybe if a prophet could tell us exactly what you would have to say for us and what you're thinking and what you want from us, that would help. And then we killed all the prophets. And then God says, okay, We've, we've tried everything that we can try, but here's, here's the one true solution that maybe you couldn't see otherwise. I'm going to come down there myself. I'm going to enter into your human story. I'm going to be born as a helpless infant baby. This is what we celebrated a few weeks ago at Christmas time. I mean, this is, this is God, the creator of the universe, never, you know, Without, be, without beginning, without end, the Alpha and the Omega, all these things, the God that speaks everything into existence from nothing enters into our story and puts on human flesh and becomes one of us and, and lives a life and does, goes through all these things, gets sick just like we do, you know, had to go to school just like we do, um, you know, suffered in every way that we suffered. He, he recognizes and sympathizes with our human fallen, broken condition, but yet he never sinned. And so in his perfect sinless life, he gives that to us. We clearly can't do that, but Jesus did. And he says, that's yours. That's your record now. I'm taking your report card and tearing it up and throwing it into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west, so far as your sin removed from you. And now when God looks at you, he sees my perfect life. But yet there's still this problem of punishment. God's wrath is turned against us. That's what Ephesians 2 says, that God's wrath is turned against those enemies of God. Where does that wrath go? Jesus then goes to the cross and dies this brutal, painful death that you and I deserve to die. That we, he took the punishments for our sin. Not just, give us, not just give us a gold star for doing nothing. He does everything. He takes our punishment that we deserve on himself and takes it to the grave. The picture, you know, maybe the idea that you have of this is um, salvation is, you know, you're drowning and the lifeguard jumps in and pulls you out and, and breathes life back into you. The picture we have of Jesus is completely counterintuitive. He, you're drowning and he lets you drown and die. And then he jumps in himself and he dies. And then three days later, he comes back out of the water along with you and you're both alive again. It's through his death that we're saved, not through, not just his perfect life, but his, his um, atoning death on our behalf. He becomes our substitute, and he sets us free from this record of sin. So we have his perfect life that he gives to us, and he takes our death. That's a, it's not a very good deal, but that's what he makes. And then by three days later, coming back from the dead, that's what makes it all official. He seals it. And he conquers death and hell and sin and Satan once and for all time. He accomplishes it. it. It is finished, Jesus says. So because of this reality, because of God's love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. And so when it says that he raised us up with him, 
This is the idea of union with Christ. This is a a theological doctrine. But at the same time, what it's saying is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And so whatever is true of Christ is now also true of you. So when God raised him from the dead, spiritually, when we are dead and we are in Christ, then we are raised with him. The same way that he came back from the dead, so so are we. And it says, and then this, the thing that's hard to get our minds around, that we are now currently, presently seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ right now is risen from the dead. He is sitting at, in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of God. And it says that's where we are too. Wherever Christ is, so are you. That is your reality. That is how God sees you. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your messy report card. He sees Jesus, his perfectly obedient son. Wherever he is, there you are too. This is now your identity. You once were dead and now you're alive. And now you are this beloved child of God so that in the coming ages he might show, in this language, I mean, beautiful, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So we have this picture of our past. This is who we were. And because of what Jesus has done, this is who we are now. And he gives us this picture of our future. And because of what Jesus has done in your life, then you have this future and eternity with him. Past, present, and future is laid out for us. And he, he's, he's very careful to remind us that this is not the result of our works. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. It's not because we're good enough or we're better than other people or you know, whatever, something special about us that God decided this would work out. He, he gives it to us freely because of who he is, not because who we are. We didn't earn this or deserve it. And so, and Paul, you know, time and time again is careful that you can't, because our, our default, our, our, the switch that we go to every time, because everything in our culture is so transactional, is to say, you know, well, I, need, I better pay this back, or I better, you know, I better actually deserve what's being given to me. Nothing, nothing's for free. There's no free lunch. You can't believe any of these things. So we try to earn everything. And Jesus is saying, you, you, you didn't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't sin enough to lose it, and you can't do enough good things to make me love you more than I already do. All of this is true. But then at the end of this, then he talks about, for we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So he brings up this good works thing, thing again that we, you know, he, he's pushing so hard against, like, you can't earn it or deserve it, but you are going to do good works. And what's that all about? So this picture given here that we are his workmanship and we're created, it's, it's the same language as the beginning, as Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God is creating something from nothing. He has made us a new creation in him. We are no longer that person who we used to be. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. God has crafted something beautiful and new in us. We sang about that this morning. And he's created us, not just, he hasn't just saved us from something, he saved us to something. And that's these good works that he's prepared beforehand. Now we can't earn or deserve God's love. We already have that. So now we have this freedom in that love 
to do good works, not because out of obligation, not out of fear, not because we have to, not because we're being forced to, but because we get to. It's a response of the gratitude, a heart that, is, that recognizes fully what God has done for them in Christ, responds in this way of, I will walk in these things. I will live this life. And it's not something we have to spend too much time worrying about or thinking about because it says that God prepared those for us to do before the creation of the world. So it continues to be good news. So I don't know, I mean, if you're following along in your, in your bulletin, that first point that we're only two, um, is that believers have been changed. We are not who we once were. We have been changed. And so then what comes out of that, we have to understand those pieces, where we came from, where we are, to get to the rest of the points. So in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, he does a very similar thing as he's done in the first 10 verses. He does a compare and contrast of before and after. But whereas Ephesians 2, 1 is, is so personal, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time all of you Gentiles, if you are not ethnically Jewish by birth, you are considered a Gentile. All of us... As a, as a species, um, as a race of people that is not, not ethnically Jewish, um, all of you Gentiles in the flesh called the circ- uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So remember, it's important to know where we came from. And it's important to recognize that in that scheme of human history that I was talking about earlier, that, that at that time, if you weren't ethnically Jewish, if you weren't a descendant of Abraham, it was God's plan. God said, I will bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But time and time again, the Israelite people were disobedient to God's plan. It was very hard to know God to understand who the Messiah was, to receive salvation. Salvation has always, once and for all time, been through Jesus Christ, through understanding of his Messiah. But being separate from Israel made that very hard until Jesus came. So he says, remember, it wasn't, ju- it, it wasn't just helpless and hopeless for you before Christ. At one point, it was helpless and hopeless for all of humanity apart from Christ. Right? And so the problem is, is, is personal. It, it is, it's difficult to wrap your mind around, but at the same time, it is universal. This is a problem that we all have, and at one time, it was almost impossible. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So I'll give you the second point, you know, very quickly. He, the walls separating us are torn down, right? So, in this, so a couple of ideas here. So this, he himself is our peace. Jesus, we've talked about what he has done for us, what is finished and accomplished on the cross. And it says that he becomes our peace. And we see this word a lot in the Bible, the word peace is the, the Hebrew word shalom. You may have heard that. Um, and this word shalom has the connotation not just of, of 
temporal peace. We often think of peace, you know, so America, if we're not at war with another country, we are in a peacetime, that we're anticipating the next war that we might be in. The kind of peace talked about in the Bible is the peace that we knew in the Garden of Eden and the peace that we will know in the new heavens and the new earth. It is not just the absence of war. It is the kind of of utter, total peace that comes when every enemy has not just been defeated, but is put to death and is gone forever. There is no one to stand up against us. There is no war to anticipate. All wars are finished because of what Christ has done. He gives us total comprehensive peace that will go on forever. Christ himself is that peace for us, and he has made us both one. The, the, the counterintuitive math of the kingdom of God, you take one race of people plus another race of people plus Jesus equals Jesus. He takes what divides us. I mean, how many times? I mean, just again, like it's 2018. Come on. The, the, our... The the country that we come from, the language that we speak, the color of our skin, the color of our eyes and hair, um, you know, the things that, the labels that we put on each other, the way that we vote, uh, our income, our, you know, male or female, whatever, all these, we have all of these walls and barriers that divide us. And Jesus, in all of that, says none of that matters. Because, right, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've heard the, the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. I mean, this is the thing. We, we can say, it doesn't matter what our differences are. You're a sinner who needs Jesus just like me. We're all in the same boat now. So whether it's the Queen of England or a beggar on the street, we can approach everybody with the same humble confidence that we come from the same place and we have the same need. And that's, that's hard because... Walls still exist in this world. But Jesus is saying, I've torn all those down, and that doesn't have to be as hard as you're making it. The thing that gets us outside of these four walls of the church, the thing that lets us live out that life of discipleship is recognizing the the reality, the reality of who we truly are and who everyone else around us truly is. Those walls have been torn down. And so he creates in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and thereby kills the hostility. And then finally we come to, and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to God the Father. This, This picture of being invited into the throne room of God, having access, where we once were cut off and separated from God, that relationship could not happen. If you ever have a, you have a friend, somebody's house that you can, um, you know, you don't have to ring the doorbell or knock. You can just go in, usually like through the back door or a side door, like you can just go into their house and open their fridge and eat their food. Like you ever have a friend like the, that good of a relationship? Um, you know, that it's, it's a special thing. And God, that's what Jesus is saying. What I've done for you is not just before God was your enemy, before God was unapproachable to you, and now he says you have complete access to me. Come in whenever you want. You know, you eat my food. Do, be part of my life. I'm inviting you in. You have access to one Father, one Spirit in the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, You are fellow citizens with the saints 
And so this picture where we once were, were far off, we once were strangers and aliens to, you know, God's kingdom was this very small, ethnically, regionally contained nation of Israel. But the borders of God's kingdom are ever-expanding. And so now, because of Jesus, all of our green cards are stamped with the blood of Christ. And it says, you are now a citizen of, of my kingdom. It doesn't matter where you come from, what nation, what your background is, what your heritage is. You now can be part of my kingdom. And more than that, members of the household of God. So this ever-increasing circle of familiar, your friends, your citizens, and your family. My, my wife loves the story of Anne of Green Gables. I don't know if you guys, any of you watched this. This may be the worst, most irrelevant uh, analogy, but, but in this, this Netflix made a new series, an updated series of Anne of Green Gables called Anne with an E. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily into that story, but I heard that this was a darker, grittier take on the Anne of Green Gables story, so that, that hooked me in. So we watched this together, my wife and I, and I think it's about episode three, but there's, you know, Anne is this little orphan girl, and um, this brother and sister who are elderly, they, they want to adopt a boy to, uh, you know, take over the family business. And this girl shows up, and they didn't want a girl. They want a boy. They try to take her back. But because of Anne's lovability and personality, you know, she get, kind of works her way in, and they end up keeping her. And there's this episode where they finally are going to make it official, like sign the adoption paperwork and make her their child. And this girl who has never known a family Gets, she gets to sign her name with their last name, and now she's finally belongs somewhere. I mean, I, in the same way I've not drank water in 10 years, I have not cried probably in 10 years. I'm, you know, I, whatever. That's not me. But then I'm, I'm weeping, <laughs> seeing this picture. I'm saying, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus does for us. He invites us. It doesn't, you know, we, some of us have terrible parents. Some of us have, you know, distant relationships, whatever. Good parents, bad parents, whatever. You are now part of this family. And it's not just a good family. It's the best family. You have a good, good father. And you're loved by him. This is, this is a game changer. And so now we're invited into this. And this family, this household, this nation, this kingdom, it's built. Um, it has on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. So Jesus is the, is the cornerstone, the, the foundation of all this thing, and then built around that, upon those who proclaim this message of good news of Jesus, he is building something. And Jesus is the, the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together. It's both a building, a construction metaphor of brick by brick, but also this organic picture of growing something into a holy temple in the Lord, this ever-expanding, ever-increasing um, mission that is going on. And in him, you also, you who were changed, you who used to have all these walls built up, now are part of this, and it's being built together into the dwelling place of God, this picture throughout Scripture of God dwelling with his people, and he being our God, and we being his. This is what's happening. And so this church, if we're talking this morning, you know, I mean, I'm from a different church, Family Bible Church, Highland Community Church, whatever. We're, we're building a church, and it's, it's bigger than we can imagine. Whatever walls we hide behind, it doesn't matter. Whatever labels we put on it, it doesn't matter. Christ is building something, and he invites us to be part of that. And so what motivates us 
to change, to get out of our routines and our habits and to do something actually good is to recognize for the first place who we are and what Christ has done for us. It, it requires honesty, reflection about, um, about our, our spiritual state and what Christ is doing. But then once we realize that, we can see other people for who they really are. We can recognize that we're all just sinners, we're all just beggars beg, telling other beggars where to find bread. It's Martin Luther. Beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That's the Christian life. And then we become part of this bigger picture of, of what God is building in us and through us and all around us. And it's, it's growing and we're part of it. And so this can enable us to go on mission. When I started this message, and I know it's been a while, oh, the last, last point, the last fill in the blank if you're following along, so believers have been changed, the walls separating us are torn down, and then we are invited to join God's mission. That's who we are. When I started the story, I told this, this little um, illustration about um, the first time I ever drank coffee and like what that did in my life. So there's two, two changes were made in that story. So the first change was that I went from not drinking coffee to drinking coffee. And the second change was I went from not drinking water to drinking water. The second one was a lot harder to do than the first one, even though I didn't like the first, you know, coffee initially is not as good as water. <laughs> um, but the difference in those two things is that I was doing it to impress this girl. And that girl, you know, it worked because she went on to become my wife. So throughout that, I mean, I don't know if that matters. That's a really silly thing. But I have, throughout our marriage, throughout our relationship, I have made a lot of changes things that I didn't want to do because I thought she would like it or she asked me to or whatever. And those changes have been increasingly easier. But then with the second change I made to stop drinking coffee or drink less coffee and drink more water, that was something, you know, it was about my health. I mean, there was all sorts of selfish reasons for me to do that, to make this small change, but it was infinitely harder. And the difference in those two is, is love, is relationship. I love my wife. I want to please her. I want to do things that impress her and make her happy and all those things. And so I can make, I can make sacrifices. I can make changes. Um, and, I, and that it goes more smoothly. But when I'm doing something because it's good for me, <laughs> because I ought to, because somebody told me I should, those changes are, are hard. And so as we come to these, these texts, as we come to God's word, and we start to read the picture, the, the story that God is, of what he's doing in our lives, I want you to fall in love with Jesus. And I don't care how that sounds to you. I want you to fall in love with Jesus. Because if he is, um, if you become enamored with him, as Paul is here, as, I, as I'm trying to be, as hopefully you guys are too, as, as this relationship becomes real, it's that love, that relationship that begins to soften our hearts and make change way easier. And then we get to serve him. We're happy to serve him. We're happy to make these changes because of who he is and what he's done. Amen? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing some songs. Go out from this place. Father God, we are grateful and thankful for what you have done in us and through us. God, as, as we look back um, and see the place that you have brought us from, the hopelessness, the helplessness that we had in that time, God, we understand that um, we 
didn't deserve the grace that you have shown to us, but for whatever reason, you were graceful and merciful. We understand that you love us more than we can even fathom. God, we pray that we would um, come to a place where we can understand and accept that love, where we can allow it to impact and transform our hearts and lives. God, we pray that um, as we talk about the possibility of, of making changes to our routines and our habits and the, the things that were so ingrained in us, God, we, we pray that we would begin to see the world through your eyes and through your lenses and that um, all any of us really just need is, is Jesus. God, um, help that to impact our decisions and embolden our actions. And God, we pray that through the people gathered here this morning, through the people that um, are, are scattered throughout the world that belong to you, God, that, um, that this world would be transformed by the immeasurable riches of the grace that you have shown to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.